Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. Good morning, Peter. And this week, I thought it would be a good idea to have a conversation or a discussion about our attitudes to Europe. As we know, at the moment, there is this political issue, economic issue going on with the <clears throat> the uh, trade talks between, or the potential trade talks between the UK and the EU, and we're approaching a critical decision point. We don't know yet whether that's going to work, but Brexit has happened and so on. And so I thought it'd be a good idea just to explore some of the roots of why our perspective on this issue are slightly different. I don't think we're that far apart, but they are slightly different. And I thought we might do that from the perspective of uh, our own experience, uh, how we are brought up and so on, because I believe that many of the differences between the UK attitudes to Europe and, and, and your own and many others in Europe uh, is sort of cultural and historical as much as, as, much as economic, uh, and it might be fun to explore that. So I thought we could start, if you would perhaps you kick off by saying again, you know, well, where, where you were born, your early history and so on, and how that kind of shaped your views of the world. Good morning, Jonathan. I think that's a very good idea that we, that we discuss this. We've been talking about financial markets now for a couple of months, and no doubt we will continue to talk about them in the months to come, as there is ongoing nervousness in the market. So it's quite good to take a step back and, look, and discuss Europe. There's always a lot to discuss about Europe, and there is a difference in perspective between the British approach to Europe and the, let's say, in my case, the Central European approach to Europe. But as you say, we are not that far apart. I think we should go back in history to the 19th century, which is quite important because during the 19th century, the concept of the nation state started to be discussed more and more. And that led to the First World War, which the British won and resulted in the creation of the nation state, which then developed over the course of the next 100 years and represents today what I believe to be the biggest problem for Europe and what the British believe has to be the cornerstone of the European system. So in my view, it starts and ends with the concept of the nation state and has resulted in the conviction that each nation state can deal with all problems by itself. Okay, well, that is um, certainly a concept I can relate to. You're right about the 19th century in this sense. I think the, the, the position for the UK has always been that by nature of geography as much as anything else, we have an island, or a set of islands, I should say, if we include the Irish as well, um, set of islands, and we are, you know, physically distant from the, from the continent. And although we, although, you know, there were English kings who, who were, um, controlled parts of France in the, in the, in the, in the Middle Ages, we haven't actually ever, you know, stepped foot on, uh, other, on the soil of Europe, except to fight wars, as it were, distant from ourselves. 
uh, against uh, neighbors across a stretch of water. And that's been very important, I think. Uh, we kind of created a nation state by basically uh, you know, overrunning or taking control of Scotland and Wales and, and uh, parts of Ireland or all of Ireland for a while. Uh, we created our own little kind, if you like, island state. Um, and of course, we've had a privileged position in that sense. We've always been distant from the conflicts that have swept back and forth across the continent of Europe. Uh, but we've always had a, such a keen interest in them, you know, ever since the Romans invaded and the uh, uh, and then the Normans and then the Dutch sailed up the Thames, you may remember, in the 17th century. Uh, we, so we've always had a great interest in, uh, in, if you like, preventing the accumulation of great powers on the other side of the water. There have been a lot of empires, of, as you know, on, on, in the continent, uh, and they've always lapped against our shores. You know, there were fears of invasion by Napoleon. There were, uh, there's, there's always been uh, concern about. And then, of course, in the, in the 20th century, we did have two wars to fight. And we emerged on the winning side. I wouldn't say we won the war, particularly. We certainly didn't win the second war on our, on our own. <laughs> we were only, uh, you know, by the end, we were only one uh, minority part of the winning team, if you like. But uh, we did uh, win both wars. But uh, it was a mixed, a mixed blessing, shall we say. Uh, we emerged from the, the Second World War in particular in a, very, in a very bad way indeed, even though we hadn't actually been physically invaded. So, yeah, I think we start from different perspectives. Um, and also, I mean, I think you were born, I think you told us, in Trieste, uh, which I imagine was part of the Austrian Empire at some point, Austria-Hungarian Empire at some point. Was I right about that? And probably changed hands a few times over the course of history. Is, is that right? It is right. When I was born in Trieste, that was in 1952, it wasn't actually Italy, funnily enough. Not many people know that. It's not important, but it wasn't actually Italy. It was strategically important going back all the way to the 17th century when it was part of Austria. Strategically important because of, the, it's because of its geographic location. It was the only port of the empire at the time. And funnily enough, the reason why it was important for the Austrians as a conduit place to go far into the Austrian Empire and obviously transport goods, those reasons are the same reasons why the Chinese have focused so much on Trieste as a porter, as a port. And the Chinese want to link one third of the world's natural resources to one third of the world's population which is themselves. And in a way, at the time, it was not that different. Uh, it did change hands. Of course it did. It was Austria up until 1918. Then it was Italy until 1945. Then it was a free territory until 1954. And during those nine years, it was very much coveted by the Yugoslavs, by Tito. And I remember, well, I don't remember because I was a, a small boy, but I certainly remember my mother always telling me that the great worry of the local people would be that one would be overrun by Tito, who had a horrendous human rights record. I could go into lots of details about that. So in the end, luckily, it reverted to Italy. But even today, if you go to Trieste, you think you're in some southern... Austrian city in terms of the geography, the Baroque element of the architecture, and so on, and also the language and the affinity. There is a much greater affinity and nostalgia towards 
the 100 years ago or pre the First World War um, than there is, of course, in other parts of Italy where Austria was more seen like an occupier, if you like. But I want to go back and then over to you, but I just want to gently not challenge what you said, but reflect on what you said, that the British nation is a nation. You see, I don't think it is. I think that there are the English, the Scottish, the Welsh, and the Northern Irish. So to, to describe the UK as a nation state, and like so many politicians, whether it's from the left or from the right, justifying what they do and what they want to do as being in the national interest is something that's always intrigued me because there's no such thing as the, as the British nation. With regard to what you said about the British being on the winning side in both world wars, especially in the Second World War, where they were more on the winning side than in the First World War, where they, where, where they were more the victors rather than simply being on the winning side, um, it is important as well. And historically, to touch on what you said, the British were always afraid of being invaded. That's perfectly true. And I think they tried to do a lot of divide and rule where they could, sometimes siding with the French, sometimes siding with the Austrians, then with the Prussians, then with the Russians, then back with the French. That was very successful. And one of the reasons I think why the British don't want the European Union to develop is because it diminishes their own attempts at continuing behind the scenes to try and divide and rule, which they can do much better in an intergovernmental system of Europe than they could if Europe was, was one block. And certainly in a background where the nation state idea was slowly but surely being eroded. So a couple of points I'd make about that. First of all, I mean, you're right. We, the, the UK is, a, is a, uh, an agglomeration of different, uh, uh, of different nations, if you like, or different uh, types of people, the Welsh, the Scots, and so on. Uh, and it is true, uh, but that's only true up to a point. Again, if you look at it from, there's quite an interesting uh, exhibition in Oxford, fun enough, recently, which looked at the genetic characteristics of the, of the UK. And it's very interesting that actually... The, there's been, it's common sense, but there's been so much more um, uh, international blending, if you like, of genes in England than there has been in some of the remoter parts of, of the British Isles, so like Cornwall or Scotland, you know, northern Scotland and so on, and Wales as well. Okay, so they've actually, there's been a sort of a, a much bigger genetic blending in, in, the, in England than there has been around the other uh, parts of the British Isles, and that maybe one helps to explain a little bit why Welsh and Scots are very proud of their identity as well, and some of them want to turn that into independence. Uh, but I mean, I think it is uh, rather as in the United States, it's pretty clear that I think for most societies I see that with the exception, with some notable exceptions, most, a lot of people in the, uh, in the UK do think of themselves as being fundamentally British as well as being Scottish and so on. And in economic terms, obviously it has been historically very um, effective having the UK as, as an entity rather than as a, a number of smaller nations. Uh, and there are quite a lot of 
transfers ago on fiscal transfers, subsidies and so on, uh, which is the price that uh, uh, the English are very happily paying for having uh, the other countries in part of their, if you like, part of their <laughs> national identity. Um, I think in, t in terms of Europe itself, though, in terms of foreign policy, I think it's always been the case that certainly in modern times, that you're absolutely right, our policy was always to divide and rule. And in particular, we were always very keen to um, uh, try and you know, prevent the Germans from expanding to the east or to the west. And it was natural, therefore, quite often to take sides with the French and the Russians and to try and play them off against each other, and also to keep uh, you know, what we saw as the German threat in the 19th century, particularly uh, as uh, under some sort of control. So I think that made a lot of sense. I don't think it was based on a, on a, on a view that somehow we were, we were doing it as a, for its own sake. We're not so naturally dividers and rulers. We're not trying to uh, cause dissension or, or so on. But I think we're always nervous of the, of the accumulation of, of power in Europe. And I think that's a large part of that is um, you know, at the heart of Euroscepticism. I'm not a Euroskeptic uh, in, the, in the kind of hard sense. I'm a sort of mild Euroskeptic in the sense that I have concerns about uh, what the EU is uh, setting out to achieve. Um, but I don't think it starts from a desire to be anti-European in any way. It's purely a, a sense that um, uh, we don't want to see, you know, the concentration of power in the continent of Europe as a kind of historical knee-jerk thing, if you like, emotional response as well as a pragmatic one. And uh, you may recall that there was a government minister, you probably don't, but in the 1980s in Mrs. Thatcher's government was... Uh, who was one of the early Eurosceptics, of which there were many in that time, uh, and he regarded the EU even then in the 1980s as what he called as a German racket to take over Europe. Uh, in other words, but in an economic sense rather than in a military sense. And I think that kind of strand of thinking is uh, is still quite uh, strong, unfortunately, in this in this country. Yes, and your the person you mentioned is called Nicholas Ridley. He's no longer with us. He was an MP for somewhere in Gloucestershire, if I remember rightly. Correct. And and he he represented, I think, several opinions in the cabinet of Mrs. Thatcher, not least Mrs. Thatcher herself. But the ironic thing about this whole discussion is that the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, in many ways, in my opinion, is a blueprint for what the European Union could look like including the fiscal transfers that you, that you mentioned from richer to, to poorer areas of the United Kingdom. The reason why England, I think, has more of a multicultural and multinational angle or aspect compared with Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, I think is purely for geographic reasons. London is the capital, situated on the Thames, and it's very useful to discuss history and geopolitics when you have a map in front of you. And that's why the Dutch sailed up the Thames. I think you're referring to William of Orange. And that's why, obviously, they sailed up the Thames, because it was there, and it was there for the taking, so to speak. Um, so I think that then in 1914, just as th things were getting very, if you like, nervous in Europe, there was the trigger that triggered the First World War, which was the assassination of the Archduke in Sarajevo, which up until today, nobody knows exactly who instigated it. Some people say that it was the Russians via the Serbs, via an organization called the Black Hand. Others say that it was actually 
organized by the top echelons of the Austrian army, because obviously, like all soldiers, soldiers want to fight wars. And they wanted to prevent at all costs the Russians from getting too big for their boots in that region. And therefore, they caused the assassination of the Archduke and his wife. That's a conspiracy theory. But unfortunately, the problem started when the Austrians declared war on Serbia. And because in those days there was the Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente, who yep. all had agreements with each other to protect one another and defend one another, it obviously resulted then in the British declaring war on the Germans. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the fact that these three empires lost the war in 1918 and countries like Austria were decimated into their constituent parts and transformed into nation states, it had to lead first to communism, then to fascism, and then to the Second World War, the resolution of which has a very good angle, which was that the Germans and the French swore never to have a war against each other again. And that's where the European steel and coal community started in the Treaty of Rome, which then developed into the, all the things that we know. Now, that has to be good, because it means that since 1945, there have been no more wars on the continent. Obviously, the British Eurosceptics are going to say that the reason for that is thanks to NATO. But I'm saying I think it's that NATO did, is doing a very good job in parallel, but you can't replace the will to to gel more and more together in all sorts of ways and areas that the European Union is doing. I think that is really what um, the, the main result of or the positive result of the creation of the European Union at the time will have been and is. And I don't think anybody can disagree with that. I think in, in, in a sense, the question is how much importance do you attach to that particular aspect of it in, in the sense that obviously it's a very good thing that the countries in all the continent of Europe do not fight each other again, go to war against each other. Anything that prevents that would be something which the British would always endorse, having that having been the whole point of their, of their uh, uh, policy over the years, was to try and prevent uh, just that sort of thing happening. Uh, so I think uh, nobody would disagree with that. And uh, of course, the two wars are very different. The First World War, as you said, was started, you know, in, by what to, um, you know, many in the UK saw as a bizarre kind of event in in, uh, in in the Balkans, and they ended up spending four years in the trenches in Belgium and, and Flanders. I mean, it was uh, bizarre in the extreme. Uh, that You know, there's a very... I, the, the most recent book I read about it, I actually was given this a task at school to study this, but the most um, recent book I read was called, you know, Sleepwalking into Disaster, basically, and they were sleepwalking into disaster because nobody anticipated the consequences of what they were of what they were doing. Uh, and uh, maybe there's an issue there too for the EU as it develops. You know, you're so um, hell-bent on pursuing one objective that you may not be uh, entirely conscious at the time that you may be creating some other uh, problems along the way as well, and I think that might be one of the strands of our, of the kind of, what I would call the kind of central sceptical approach to Europe uh, that, that many in this country have. But I think there are many also who would embrace 
uh, absolutely embrace the idea, the ideal, if you like, of the EU, uh, which is that it should prevent war in Europe, and of course it's done that. Uh, I mean, after the war, of course, it was true that there was a new threat emerged, which was, well, not entirely new from the from from our point of view, which was the threat of a Russian uh, invasion or a Russian war against uh, against Europe, and that became obviously with the development of nuclear power that became uh, that became a more pressing concern. If you like, the overriding security concern uh, became the Russian threat and the threat of communism and and so on, and so there were two strands going along at the same time, and then the third one, which you haven't politely mentioned so far, is of course the uh, oft uh, noted factor that the UK, after the Second World War, we were on the winning side, uh, but we were essentially in many ways, um, even though we hadn't been invaded, we were in many ways a, a broken country in a way. We weren't hadn't seen our cities demolished, but they had suffered a lot of damage from bombing, uh, and we were never invaded, of course, which is which is which is fortunate. But um, in many ways, we were economically we were completely a basket case. The war had exhausted us economically. And we were therefore not, uh, we weren't as, in a, such a bad state as, as Germany or, or France or Austria and so on, uh, where, the, where the cities have been totally destroyed. But uh, we were in a very bad way economically. And off-quoted remark, you know, the, the, the British have, or the English, the British have lost, they've lost an empire, but they haven't discovered a role, was how um, the American Secretary of State described it after Suez. Uh, and so a lot of our our perspective after the war was was as much about the rest of the world as it was about Europe, in a funny sort of way. We still had an empire. We still, you know, until 1948, we still had uh, India, we had Singapore, we had Hong Kong, we had all these places. We had Aden, where my father served in the Air Force and where I lived for a while, uh, all these places. And so the story of the, after the Second World War, in, in many ways, was as much about that. How are we going to... You know, we, here we had an imperial power. We were an imperial power. How do we adapt to our very much reduced circumstances? And so I don't think our, you know, our eye was not so much on Europe as it was on the rest of the world. And for that, for quite a long time, until we, you know, really came to terms with the fact that we were no longer an imperial power, that became a, a much more important priority, if you like, than looking just at what was happening in Europe. You've said a lot of interesting things here, and I'm very glad that you brought up Russia, because Russia was the raison d'être, if you like, or one of the most important ones, for the European Union to develop closer together. And, you know, Churchill, for example, who, who was on the winning side, if you like, uh, but Churchill, who was a very big hero in England, in Britain, uh, for example, you've got the current prime minister, Who's trying his best to emulate Churchill. And Churchill is extremely popular, um, but he's not that popular in certain corners of Europe, and Indeed. especially those countries in Europe which fell, as they would tell you, on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain, thanks to Churchill. Um, there was a very interesting snippet that I read the other day that there was a big military parade in Russia after the war that Churchill attended, and apparently in great pomp and circumstance. And apparently Churchill turned to his aide and said, I think we've slaughtered the wrong pig. And a lot of Europeans will tell you that one of the British, if you like, characteristics 
is that they never were able correctly to judge and assess the Russians and the Russian mentality. So these countries, all the way from the Baltic states down to the Balkans, will tell you that Churchill handed them over on a silver plate to the Russians, as a result of which the Americans needed to have a huge military presence in Europe to protect Europe against the Russians. So you have an absurd situation where 350 million Americans are responsible for protecting 350 million Europeans against 350 million Russians. These numbers, by the way, are approximate. And so that's why I'm glad that you brought in Russia as a topic, because I, as an Austrian, as a Central European, I'm Austrian, but of course Austria was, was much bigger and in my family than not only Austrians, but other Central Europeans, always live in apprehension and in fear of the Russians coming back. My home in Austria was occupied by the Russians for 10 years up until 1955, when they then, together with the three other allies, withdrew again from Austria, making Austria one of the, I think, only countries that Russia withdrew from having been in. And Austria was divided into four, and our home happened to be, uh, unfortunately, in the Russian zone, and the Russians behaved appallingly. They don't remember that anymore, because all the people who were on the wrong side of the Russian appalling behavior have all died out now. So there are not very many people who can tell you the tales of what happened at the time. So you're right, you're right. Just to finish off, you're right. The British had other preoccupations in 1945 because they still had the empire, whereas the Europeans were, were a broken-down collection of nation-states that somehow had to dust themselves off and get together again, which I think, kicking and screaming, they have done quite successfully so far. Okay, so, well, I, I, I'm going to put in a small word for Churchill here. I'm familiar with uh, the story, but I'm, I'm surprised you characterize it quite that way as, as being Churchill's responsibility. I mean, if you look at the historical, you know, all the documents coming out now, it's very clear that, uh, you know, Churchill was a very minor player at Yalta. He was, he was constantly being told, he, he, he believed he was, uh, he wanted to be one of the big three, but it became very apparent very quickly that he wasn't one of the big three. It was the Americans and the Russian and Stalin were there, and Churchill had no power. I mean, he had, and, and, and unfortunately, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law, and the fact that the Russians were actually in these many of these countries at the time by virtue of the way the war had developed. And there's a lot of anguish on the, on the UK side that, you know, who could get across Europe fastest at the closing stages of the war to ensure that the Russians were, you know, did not get as far as, uh, as, as, uh, as they eventually did. But I mean, I think the British view would be that we were completely powerless at that point. We had no, we were, we were, we were bankrupt, effectively. We were totally reliant on the Americans uh, for economic support. Uh, and I don't think we had, we just didn't have the clout to, what could, we, what could we do to Stalin? We couldn't tell him to, you know, please, Mr. Stalin, go back. It wasn't quite like that, was it, I'm afraid? And that's, that's, that's a very harsh reality, and I think it's one that we are actually conscious of. Um, 
And I think, uh, you know, Churchill had many flaws, as we know. I mean, he was, he was a great man in many ways, but he was also very flawed. And his career is littered with bad mistakes, uh, which cost lives, um, you know, in the First World War, Gallipoli and, and, and things like that. Uh, so he's a very much a flawed, uh, a flawed hero of ours. But I, I, I would certainly think it's a little harsh to blame him for what, what happened in Eastern Europe after the war. It is true, he may have felt that we had to accommodate the Russians uh, at some point, but that doesn't necessarily imply that we were, uh, we were actively um, you know, supporting them. Uh, even though, of course, it is true that in the 1930s there had been this kind of ridiculous uh, lionization of the Soviet Union based on complete uh, ignorance uh, by some left-wing kind of intellectuals in particular, you know, the, the Webb, Sidney and Beatrice Webb and other people like that, who actually thought that the Soviet Union was, you know, the, was, was the arrival of utopia on Earth. I mean, it's hard to credit that now, but they really thought that. Uh, and, and it was only, you know, after the... Uh, I think many people weren't aware until the Second World War exactly of how awful, you know, the, the Soviet regime in that era had been and the purges that Stalin carried out, collectivization of the farm, I mean, massive slaughter of hundreds of millions of people. I mean, it was an appalling legacy. Um, and uh, that, as you say, it was one of the very unfortunate consequences of the Second World War, that uh, enabled the Soviet Union to establish itself as a uh, significant power in Europe. So, yes, of course, uh, yes, of course, we are in the situation where we are dependent on NATO, or as we see it, you know, and the Americans in particular, to defend us. Um, and the question is, well, can... I mean, one of the issues that we don't really talk about is is recently surfaced is the question of the EU army and so on, and, and whether or not is it ever going to be a practical reality that Europe as a collective identity could form itself uh, in a defence policy that was actually realistically... Uh, going to be able to defend Europe on its own. There are some protagonists in the European Union who said, who have said and continue to say, that having an army in Europe is more, is more important than having a single currency. I don't happen to agree with that, but I do agree that having a European army is very necessary, is very logical, has to be backed up by European foreign policy, and, above all, <clears throat> is nothing new. If you take, again, as a model, the Austro-Hungarian army, it had regiments coming from all sorts of different areas of the empire. So you had the, the, the Ruthenian regiments, the Czech regiments, and so on. And very often, the soldiers therein didn't speak very good German. But it was an army. It, it wasn't it wasn't a very powerful army and it it lost against Napoleon and all that. But the idea of having a European army, I don't think would be would be anything new. And because of what I was saying earlier about the Americans having to buy a NATO to protect the Europeans from the Russians, I think is very, very much still um, a fact. And that anybody who gets into the illusion of thinking that the Russians have been tamed only need to look at what Mr. Putin is doing right now, where he's changing the constitution and he's going to remain in power until 2036 and has called the collapse of the Soviet Union the most calamitous event in Europe in this century, invaded the Crimea, 
and is just as, if you like, expansionist or imperialist as he always was and as his predecessors were. And he wants to become, like all his predecessors, the Tsar of all the Russias. And it seems to be working. And there seems to be little opposition. Obviously, if there is opposition, it immediately gets snuffed out. So to my mind, the Russian threat is there, looming as big as ever. And I think that I'm hoping that in 50 years time, which is a long time, there will be an army in Europe. And just finally, on the final note, I agree with what you said about Churchill, and I didn't want to paint him in a in a negative picture at all. Um, you have to add as well that in, in Yalta, Yalta um, President Roosevelt, I think, was dying of cancer already. So you had Churchill, who had no more real powers. You had the Americans, who were led by a man who was dying of cancer. And you had Stalin, who was omnipotent. So, of course, in that sense, it was very, very difficult to push him back. He was there first. He was quicker. Um, he divided up. Uh, as a result, Germany was divided up and all the other things that we know. So I think to conclude, I don't see that there is less of a reason today to continue for a united Europe and to, in my opinion, slowly dismantle the nation states who think that they can deal with everything on their own, but really they can't. They can't have, uh, for example, each of them a foreign policy when you've got these big trading blocks and you've got countries like India getting more and more commercially, more and more viable and important. So I think that that is a direction, is the direction of travel and is probably in the end going to be inevitable. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, I think you may, you may be right about that, I think. But I mean, again, I just, I, I'm not going to defend Russians, certainly not Mr. Putin. But I mean, again, if you look at the history, they were invaded twice by, uh, by Napoleon, and then they were invaded by the Germans in the Second World War. Uh, okay, so they feel vulnerable as well, as it happens. Their historical is based on this sense of defiance against the, you know, these horrible people from the, from the, from the West who come in invade our country for whatever reason. And that, unfortunately, is very strong, and they proved that in the war. I mean, the, the punishment that the, the Russian army took was far greater than, uh, the, you know, in terms of men lost and so on. They certainly made up for it. Why did they make up for it with the retribution they invented on people? But uh, they certainly suffered hugely during the wars. Uh, and I think that's deep in their culture. So it is, you know, it is a danger. It is a threat. Uh, I don't know whether how real it is, but it certainly is a significant threat and one that Europe needs to guard against. Um, I guess my kind of question is, it's, you know, it always comes back to this issue. The nation state, you know, as an institution is one thing, but there's also this question of uh, national identity. In other words, that uh, it does appear to be the case that human beings, for whatever reason, they do like to belong to groups. They do feel, they do want to identify with, with other groups. It's, you know, the social aspects of life are very important to lots of people. We've seen that from hundreds of sociological studies from behavioral studies and so on people want to belong to something uh, and they'll do extraordinary things in order to 
if you like, validate that sense of belonging, including, you know, going to fight wars, which really are a long way away from, from you know, a distant country that we know little about. I mean, it's uh, extraordinary that people will do that. Uh, and you have to wonder, I mean, this is the question, I guess, for Europe. Um, what you say is fine if, we have, if, if, the, if the next war, if there is one, God help us, is fought by, you know, uh, professional armies, that's one thing. But if it, if it involves going to involve conscription again and, and forcing people to fight, we, you know, the whole history of the last, uh, <clears throat> last um, 50, 70 years is that that's going to be a very tough ask, you know, to ask, you know, young people, and it's always young people who have to do the fighting, young people to go to war uh, in defense of, say, you know, a country like, uh, shall we just take an example, Estonia, which, the, you know, a lot of people don't know anything about, even know where it is. Um, it's going to be very difficult. So the question is, what sort of army and what sort of war are we going to have? And what are we protecting ourselves against, particularly in an age when we're still nuclear weapons around? You know, it's, those are big questions. And I'm not sure that, um, you know, is... Is, your, is it right, first of all, that Europe should try to create uh, a huge overriding entity for which people' primary loyalty is going to be to that overriding entity? Or is it going to be, as you perhaps implied at the beginning, between a series of consenting intergovernmental you know, arrangements? Okay, But government, intergovernmental arrangements imply some kind of nation state. It's the government of somewhere. Uh, and the question is, what is it they are? You know, whose governments are they? And, and, who's, and which governments will people actually identify with and uh, go out to do things for? Yes, I agree with everything you said, but we mustn't confuse the nations with the states. In other words, what you said is perfectly right. There has to be a sense of belonging. There are nations. You can't do away with them, nor should you. They're very charming. They're in their diversification and so on. But it doesn't mean that they have to transform themselves into states which think that they can handle everything. I was going to say earlier on that the most, ex the most obvious example of these nation states not being able to handle a major crisis has of course been the COVID-19 crisis, where they all locked their countries, the Schengen idea flew out of the window, they all had their own policies, they didn't try and converge, they didn't try and work together, they were working against each other and still are. So that's a typical example of a crisis that a nation state cannot really solve on its own, I think. So I'm very much up for nations. I mean, that's, that's part of nature that you have nations and, and ethnic diversity. That's very, very good, very sound and very healthy. Protecting Estonia by being drafted into a European Union army Young, a young person who has to go and defend a country that he doesn't know very much about. I think we've moved on from there. I think that was Chamberlain who said that with regard to the Czechs, to protecting the Czechs against Hitler, which resulted in appeasement. But I think today it's, it is quite different. I think we will find that a lot of people know much more about Estonia today than knew about Czechoslovakia at the time. It has to be like that. I also think that the traditional wars with tanks and soldiers and all that are probably a thing of the past, especially in Europe. And therefore, the European army that I'm advocating 
should look more like the Swiss army. And in the Swiss army is there to protect itself. And you know, if we were Swiss, you and I, we would no longer have to do three weeks per year military train, training, and we would no longer have to have weapons and ammunition locked up in our houses. I think we're too old for that. I don't know when the cutoff age is. But in Switzerland, the army exists for the purpose of protecting itself. It's not going to go on a rampage and invade Germany or Austria. It's there to protect itself. So that's the sort of army that I think uh, is necessary, because if you take the nation-states armies, I don't really see what good they could do to the greater interests of a united Europe, Jonathan. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, I think we don't know, of course, what the nature of any future war will be, and hopefully there won't be one. But uh, uh, I think it does raise a serious question, though, about this issue of, you know, you, you said you don't like the idea of national states, uh, you know, giving themselves the powers to decide everything. But I mean, the Eurosceptic tradition is, is would say that is precisely what the EU is trying to do. It's trying to set itself up to settle every issue uh, on, a, on, a, on a professedly consensual basis. But in reality, there's a lot of horse trading and there's a bit of power grabbing by the European institutions. So, you know, where would that end? I mean, that is a question we might discuss another time. But uh, <laughs> it's been very interesting, Peter. I think we, you know, it's it's just so important to discuss different aspects and approaches to, uh, you know, we need to examine our own, if you like, cultural and historical biases uh, if we're ever going to achieve, um, you know, harmony and unity across the continent. And I hope we can. I hope we can do that. So do I, Jonathan. Thank you very much. A very very interesting debate again. And I think next week we'll probably be moving back into the financial markets. Don't forget that we're now reaching the end of the second quarter when people tidy their portfolios up. And suddenly when you get into the new quarter, things look completely different. So thank you very much. I look forward to that and have a good weekend, Jonathan. Thank you too. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice. Thank you.